0: We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. All right, let's continue our worship. We're going to look at God's word. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Galatians. If you think a little bit about our journey through Galatians so far, in one sense, you could say it's a battle of two different logics, couldn't you? It's a battle of the logic of the gospel of grace on one side, and then we have the logic of the world on the other side. And so far, Paul has been really, really clear what the logic of the gospel of grace is, hasn't he? Over and over and over again, we've seen this again and again. So kids, I know we've got kids in here. I want to hear from you. From our study so far, what is the only thing you need in order to be saved? What do you need? I see a hand. Yes. What do you need? You need to believe. You need faith, right? What do you need faith in? Somebody else, some other kid. That's always, a, that's always a, a safe answer. Yes, faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. We've seen it over and over and over again through this book of Galatians. The good news of the gospel is that faith in the person and work of Jesus alone is, not, is what saves us, not anything else. As, think about this. As sinful people, we are counted clean before a holy and righteous God based on the work of Jesus and our faith in his gracious work. So The logic then is this, according to the gospel of grace, if faith alone saves you, if faith alone is the basis that God uses to justify you, to declare you righteous, if it's faith alone, then it's nothing else, right? That's the logic of the gospel of grace. It says that we can do nothing to earn or keep our right standing before God, but rather it is freely given to us as a gift by God's grace. But that logic is counter to the logic of the world, isn't it? The gospel of grace isn't the way the no- world normally works. Like, we aren't just given free good stuff with no strings attached, are we? That, that the things of this world are given to us because we somehow have to er- work, work at it or earn it or somehow we deserve it. The logical world says we get good things because we've earned them. We've put in the work. Somehow we've done something to deserve them. We certainly don't get free things as incredible as relationship with a God of the universe forever for free. We've got human effort on one side versus grace and faith alone on the other. The logic of the world versus the logic of the gospel of grace. These are two very, very different messages. It seems so cut and dry when we're sitting here in church, doesn't it? It seems so obvious what Christians should believe and what Christians always believe, but... Even we who have been saved by grace are not immune to the logic of the world. After all, the world's logic is what makes the most sense to our natural hearts, isn't it? It's what makes the most sense to our sinful hearts. So we too can start to abandon the tight logic of the gospel of grace. We too can start to believe things that are just simply inconsistent with the gospel. And to make things even worse, we may not even notice Is there even a place for logic in Christianity, (laughs) right? Like, Many non-Christians and many Christians too believe that. No, religion is just about having faith. Just have faith and just believe. A kind of blind faith that you shut off your brain for. In fact, the world often perceives Christians as what? As ignorant, unintelligent, weak-minded. We are willing just to believe silly, illogical things with no shred of, of evidence. And the truth is, my friends, sometimes Christians do believe really silly, illogical things that are inconsistent with the gospel of grace. I mean, you or Christian friends you have, or maybe some friends you have who claim to be Christian may be a proof of this, that they fall into this trap. They start to believe things that make no sense. Or we start combining contrary, contradictory beliefs together. Or we just kind of mix and match, we take here and there. Yes, faith in Jesus saves us, but we also need to be baptized in order to be saved. Or yes, faith in Jesus saves us, but we also need to regularly take communion to keep our salvation. Or yes, faith in Jesus saves us, but, I mean, there's other ways to be saved, there's other paths. Yes, faith in Jesus saves us, but he wasn't really God, or he wasn't fully human, or he didn't really live a sinful life, or he didn't really rise again from the dead. These things present a real danger to the Christians. This is the culture we swim in. All those things I just mentioned are things that Christians have believed through the centuries of the church. We see it happening today too. And so I think the subtle yet potent danger is this. Not only is the logic of the gospel of grace radically contrary to the logic of the world all around us, but we as Christians might not even notice or care about what is logically consistent in the first place. And so, we end up believing something that is then distinctly not the gospel of grace and something that is unable to save us. Do you see the danger? Here in Galatians, Paul is willing to go over war about this. For Paul, there's no such thing as just shutting off your brain and just blindly believing. He, he has spent, think about this, oops, wasn't supposed to do that yet, don't look at that. He has spent the first two chapters of Galatians doing what? Using his brain. This is a huge argument. He's logically, consistently working this out for why to reject the false gospel. The false gospel, that is what? Jesus plus some other good work is needed to earn or keep salvation. The letter, this letter in the book of Galatians is Paul's battle against the logic of the world with the logic of the gospel of grace, urgently calling these young Christians in these Galatian churches that he has planted to remain consistent with the logic of the gospel of grace. So far, he has meticulously used this logic to show his readers why he can be a trusted source and why he's preaching the full gospel. He's used this logic so far, so, so far to argue why adding anything to the faith in Jesus alone is insane. He's used the logic of the gospel of grace to show why he personally can't go back to the way he was before when he was growing up in Judaism. And now, Paul is going to use the logic of the gospel of grace to further persuade his beloved Galatian readers to reject these completing claims that faith alone in Jesus is not enough. And in so doing, my hope is as we read our text this morning, it's going to buoy your own confidence that what you need to be saved is faith in Jesus alone. And if you don't believe that this morning, my hope for you is that God is going to use these words this morning to save you. That so you will see the logic of the gospel of grace and give your trust to Jesus alone. Faith in Jesus is all that's required for salvation, says Paul, period. So now Paul is going to plead with his readers to stay true to that logic. And he's going to do that in our text today. He's starting to turn a corner a little bit. We saw the last couple of weeks, he focused a lot on his own story, his own experiences. This morning, now he's going to turn to the experiences of his Galatian readers. He's going to move from using his own story to now the Galatian experience to prove the logic of the gospel of grace. And he's going to answer this question for us. How does the experience of the Galatian Christians prove that faith alone is required for salvation? All right, he's going to get at it for us. Please open up your Bibles to the Galatians, in the New Testament, after First and Second Corinthians. we we'll mean in Galatians three this morning. If you don't have a Bible, then bring one. There's some on the table right in front of the AV booth. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home. We would love to gift that to you. Our text this morning is in Galatians three, verses one through six. And this morning, I'm going to read the entire text at the beginning, and then we'll go back and work our way through and see how Paul is building argument upon argument upon argument all the way through. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as I read God's Word? After I read this, I'll say, this is God's Word, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. So here is Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? This is the word of God. You may be seated. O oh, foolish Galatians, but... Paul isn't demeaning his readers here, is he? We've already seen he loves them. In chapter one, he twice calls them brothers and sisters. He loves these readers. And yet, it's because of that love that he's now able to write what he's writing. And he's gonna go and be pretty straightforward with them now. Oh foolish Galatians. This is this is fascinating to me because his approach isn't, yeah, I get it. The logic of the world makes a lot of sense to our natural hearts. It's really hard. We're swimming uphill. The culture around us tells us something different. I completely understand why you're being tempted to now turn away from the logic of the gospel. I get it. Like, Paul doesn't take that approach at all, does he? I mean, even in chapter 1, we see, what does Paul say? He says that he's astonished that the Galatians are turning from the logic of the gospel of grace. And here in verse 1, chapter 3, he says, you're foolish, (laughs) you foolish Galatians. It's as if the Galatians are now under an evil magic spell. It's as if they have been bewitched. It makes no sense to Paul. The Galatians themselves, figuratively through Paul's vivid preaching, saw Jesus himself crucified. It's as if Paul painted the work of Jesus on a big poster and had it before them for all of them to see. This is why Paul's so confused. The Galatians heard the truth, like they have the facts. But for Paul, it is absolutely inconceivable for anyone who has right understanding of the significance of the cross, what was painted in front of them, to then flirt with believing that faith alone isn't enough for salvation, to believe that something needs to be added. to faith in Jesus is to misunderstand, it's to undervalue, it's to not really get the significance of Jesus' work. It is utter foolishness to rightly understand the grace of God in the cross, the truth that Jesus did what we never could. He lived a completely sinless life. He took our sin upon his sinless self. He died the death that we deserve for the penalty for our sin. He rose again from the dead forever, crushing the power of sin and death forever. He gave us his righteousness and took from us our, sinful, uh, our sin from us he graciously put us back in right relationship with God if we only trust him as our only way for this to happen. Paul is saying, if you believe all of that, which I know you do, it's utter foolishness to believe that right understanding of the significance of that and then also to believe that it wasn't actually sufficient. That maybe we need to add some of our own good works to it. Really? Seriously? It says, Paul, you really think Jesus, the God-man, the second member of the divine eternal trinity through whom all creation was made and through whom all creation is currently sustained, needs your help? <laughs> like, like, Turn your brain, says Paul. Use your mind. Do you really think that this Jesus, who is the basis for the gospel, then means the gospel is grace plus some of your own good stuff? Do you really think there's any good thing you could possibly do that's going to bridge the infinite gap between your sin and a perfectly holy God? Come on, says Paul. It's foolish. It abandons the logic of the gospel of grace, which is itself founded upon the work of Jesus. For Paul, this is absolutely unbelievable. It's, inconce- it's inconceivable. You should know better. For some bewitching reason, you are no longer connecting the dots. Connect the dots from what Jesus did, perfectly sufficient. Everything he did on the cross to faith alone for right standing before God. The church, if, if you're wrestling with this, if you're wrestling with what's true, what isn't, what did Jesus do, what didn't he, what actually is true for your salvation, if, if your heart, this is what mine does, If your heart is wooing you to think that your good works are pretty amazing and that they are strong enough in order to build a case that you can present before God why he should save you, if you're finding yourself mixing and matching beliefs, one surefire solution to bring clarity to that is to look to the cross. Who is Jesus? What did the cross accomplish? Was he just a good role model? just died a tragic death but nothing more? Or maybe he did accomplish quite a bit on the cross but left a few things for us to now finish? Or do you believe that the work that Jesus did on the cross was completely sufficient for everything we need in order to be saved? If you believe that Jesus' work was that, that was entirely sufficient, then you have a right biblical understanding. You get it. You see the facts. So then, Paul then pleads with you in that place, just like he does with his Galatian readers, to remain firmly consistent with the logic of the gospel of grace and reject any of those other competing claims. You're going to hear them. You're going to continue to hear them. But Paul's case is to reject them. They're powerful, though, aren't they? And so Paul is going to continue his argument here. To help us and his Galatian readers stay or to get back on track, he's now going to use a series of questions designed to prove from the Galatian own experience, their own unobjectionable experience, that faith alone is required for our salvation and faith alone. Paul's about to list several experiences, several pieces of evidence to build his case here on the effectiveness of faith. Verse 2 has the first one, and it's this. His Galatian readers received the Spirit; they have the Holy Spirit. His Galatian readers cannot argue with that—that they don't have the Spirit; that they received the Spirit when they trusted Jesus alone for their salvation. It's obvious they have them. They responded to Paul's preaching, this big poster that he figuratively made for them. They responded with faith, and at that moment, they were saved and received the Holy Spirit, who is the very seal upon their salvation and who is a sure sign that they've been saved. Now stop for a moment and consider that, the role of the Spirit here. We've seen so far in this letter to the Galatians a really, really hot topic that's been debated, haven't we? On the one hand, we have the Judaizers who are arguing that you have to first become Jews in order to become a Christian, that you first have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. On the other hand, we have Paul who's saying, no, that's not the case. This has been a hot topic, and it continues to boil up in the early church. In Acts 15, we have something recorded that's called the the council at Jerusalem, where the early churches now debate this again. There's the question, can Gentiles be saved apart from circumcision? I'm going to read a little bit about what comes out of that council. council. This comes out of Acts chapter 15. Uh, And notice, this is Peter talking. Remember from a couple of weeks ago? Peter and Paul's clashing. Now, here we're going to have Peter's words. I want you to especially notice, is that big enough? (laughs) It's pretty small. I want you to especially notice where the spirit is in here in relation to salvation. Acts 15. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. do Gentiles have to be circumcised or not. And after there had been much debate, Peter (laughs) stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Those words are a little too small for me. On the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be, what? Saved through faith by grace in the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see what Peter's saying here? He's saying they've been given the Spirit. It's a sure sign that they have salvation as well. And guess what? They weren't circumcised first. The Spirit is a sure sign of salvation. John later, he would write this really simply. Much, short, much shorter. Can you get that for me, Jen? My clicker. Oh, there it goes. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So, do you see the force of Paul's argument here to his Galatian readers? Remember, says Paul, you know you receive the spirit by faith alone, not by keeping any of the Mosaic law, whether it's circumcision or the dietary rules or anything else. Did you have to work hard for the Spirit to come? No. You received the Spirit. By God's grace, you were given the Spirit the moment that you heard the vivid truth about Jesus and placed faith in him. You undeniably received the Spirit. Therefore, here's the logic, you have been given salvation based solely on faith in Jesus alone. This is Paul's first argument here from the Galatian experience. The Galatians can't argue with that. Faith that it alone is effective for salvation, and the Spirit is the evidence. And that is consistent with the logic of the gospel of grace. But, just in case that wasn't convincing enough, Paul is going to go on. Here's a second piece of evidence, verse 3. Think straight, says Paul. Stay true to the logic of the gospel of grace. If faith alone is how you receive the Spirit at conversion... If God through the Spirit is the one who gave you new life at the start, do you now think he is unable to keep you? Do you now think he is unable to grow you in your faith? Do you now think the Spirit's role is over and it's now completely up to you and the good stuff that you do? Do you think your works are now so effective to keep you and grow you? Of course not, right? Of course not. Later, Paul Paul would write this in a letter to the church at Philippi. And I am aware of this, that he, meaning God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion or bring it to perfection at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here to the Galatians is that God is the one who does this, the Spirit is the one who does this. But Paul's point is not the opposite. He's not saying that the Christian life is just Passive that we should just sit on our couches and expect to grow in our love for God. He's not saying that growing in the Christian faith does not involve hard work. What he is saying is that the Spirit is the one who empowers that hard work. The Spirit indeed uses our effort to mature us. This is what he writes later later in the same letter to the book of of the church in Philippi. Not that I, Paul, have already obtained this, having complete maturity in the Christian faith, is what he's talking about. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I I expend effort to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. The one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining, putting effort in, working forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, like our, our works themselves aren't what mature us. It's the Spirit that matures us. It's the Spirit that grows us in love for our good God. It's the Spirit that conforms us to the image of Jesus. It's the Spirit who brings about right Christian living. These are the sorts of things that Paul means when he's saying being, being perfected. He does not mean that we will at some point be perfect in this life, completely sinless, identical to Jesus. Rather, he means that we are being brought along by the Spirit toward God's purposes in our life, purposes to grow us spiritually, purposes for our love for God to grow, purposes to look more like Jesus over time, to better and better reflect the new life that we saw last week, to more and more live into our new allegiance, our new identity, our new way of life. It's a lifelong process that takes a lot of effort, where the Spirit is the enabler, the power behind our ability to expend that effort. The effort we expend is itself a gracious gift from God. It's a gift that we then experience in the actual expending of that effort. (laughs) Our good works don't bring about the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit brings about our good works. The Spirit brings about our obedience. Does that make sense? There's tension there in the Christian life, isn't there? But even here, we can't then turn to our good works. We can't turn to our obedience Turn to the law as the power that matures us, rather it is the Spirit. And then here, here's the clincher from verse two that we already looked at. Kids, I want to hear you again. How do we receive the Spirit? Is it by faith alone or by doing good works? Faith, yes. Thank you for listening. Faith alone. So faith alone is how we get the Spirit, right? So here's Paul's second piece of evidence from the Galatian experience that faith alone is effective. They're maturing in their faith. That's evidence of the Spirit, who we receive by faith alone at salvation. Stay true to the logic of the gospel of grace. Paul's not done. Not only does the Spirit ensure a growing faith, he also enables something else. Verse 4, what's that something else? The Spirit enables Christians to endure persecution, The Galatian uh, Galatian Christians were indeed experiencing suffering and persecution. You can read about it, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. We see some evidence there. Paul's line of reasoning then goes like this. Did you endure persecution for your faith for nothing? Do you not realize that the same spirit who matures you is also the same spirit that enables you to endure persecution? Are you now going to give in? Are you now going to listen to the Judaizers do a work like getting circumcised to avoid further future persecution? Surely not. Surely your suffering was not in vain. Why not? Because you are not only able to endure that persecution by the Spirit whom you received by faith alone, but enduring such persecution for the truth of the gospel of grace is worth it. You know that. You've proved it. Your experience shows it, Galatians. Now, I think we also have to be very careful in how we apply number two here, this piece of evidence today. Because what we're not saying, what Paul is not saying that, is that anybody from any faith system who endures persecution then must be believing true things, right? There's lots of adherence to lots of different worldviews and faiths around the world who also endure persecution. Paul is not saying simply because you endure persecution, that in itself is a proof that whatever you're believing is true. Paul's not saying that. Rather, Paul is building a cumulative argument here. Thing builds upon thing builds upon thing. Paul's building a cumulative argument, and it's the force of all the arguments together that Paul then is going to use to prove his point here. And one of those arguments, one of those building blocks is number two. Nope, I haven't put it up there yet. It's, it's, it's enduring persecution. There it is. It's, a, it's the third building block. All these things are working together. It's the same spirit that was given for them at salvation, Based on their faith alone, it's the spirit that matures them. It's also the spirit that enabled them to endure persecution. Stay true to the logic of the gospel of grace. Paul has another question, a final question for them, question after question after question. Paul now finishes his line of questioning by reinforcing what he said up there that we see as number one. He's going to reinforce that, the presence of the spirit, who's really the ground for arguments two and arguments three. Paul's about to make his argument for why denying number one is even harder. Verse 5. Paul reinforces and expands a bit on his argument that we saw earlier. It is indeed by faith alone that God gives even presently the spirit. And here's how Paul now expands upon it. It's by faith alone that God even presently works miracles among you. The Galatians can't deny The miracles that God has worked among them and the miracles that he's continuing to work among them, they are evidence of the Spirit's presence given to them by faith alone. This is Paul's then fourth uh, piece of evidence from the Galatian experience. It is obvious God saved you based on your faith alone. You're witnessing the miracles of the Spirit who was given to you at salvation, a salvation that you didn't earn by any obedience to any of the Jewish law. Stay true to the logic of the gospel of grace, says Paul. The miracles came by the same Spirit, who in turn graciously came by faith alone. Does that make sense, what Paul's doing there? How he's building all of that from the Galatian experience? He's about to do something a little bit different. He said, he's, we have the Spirit, that's proof from your experience. He's maturing you, that's proof from your experience. They endured persecution, that's proof, and you're witnessing miracles, that's proof. From your experience, now he turns a little bit of a corner, he's going to give a kicker. Now, now, now he moves to show how the Galatians what they're experiencing, all these things that they aren't just subjective feelings. They aren't, they aren't, they aren't somehow showing that God, maybe God's changed over time. It isn't some new teaching. Now, what the Galatians are experiencing here is consistent with Scripture, which what we call the Old Testament was their Scripture. Paul now turns to grounding the Galatian experience of the effectiveness of faith alone in Scripture. In doing so, Paul's going to introduce something that we're going to get much more into detail for next week. So verse six, Paul does a quote here from Genesis chapter 15. But he didn't just quote any verse, does he? he? He carefully has chosen this particular verse. Why? It's likely that Paul's opponents, these Judaizers, remember what they're saying? they're saying, "You've got to do some things in order to be a Christian first. You need to become a Jew first. It's likely, that the Judaizers are actually using Abraham as their proof from the scriptures that their argument is accurate. Abraham, this enormous figure in the Jewish faith. He's the father of the Jewish faith. And in first century Judaism, there was a lot of focus around the obedience of Abraham. Obedience of Abraham was the focus, and it was the basis then for how they understood how Abraham could be called righteous by God. And it's epitomized, this obedience is epitomized, and his willingness to even sacrifice his own son, Isaac. In other words, Abraham's good works, his obedience, earned him right standing before God. And these same good works that Abraham did were then later captured in the law that God gave to Moses. So do you see how the Judaizer argument is working here? So according to the Judaizers, just like Abraham, we then need to keep the law for righteousness before God. Does that make sense? But for Paul, that doesn't jive with the logic of the gospel of grace, does it? In fact, it doesn't jive with Scripture, period, the breadth of Scripture. So Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6 to show this. Now in Genesis 15, Abraham, then Aram, he was an old man, and his wife was old, and they had no kids. But God comes along and he says, all that is true, but I'm still going to give you a son. And one day, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Humanly speaking, that's impossible, isn't it? It can't happen. It won't happen. It's crazy. But Abraham's response is a little bit different. And that is what Paul quotes here. He quotes this. Abraham, what? Believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. There's a different view of God here. If God indeed is so gracious. If God indeed is the one who justifies us, as the logic of the gospel of grace says, because of Jesus, through our faith in him alone, if the logic of the gospel of grace is true, that God is the one who accomplishes all that we need, then the logic of the world that says that Abraham can't have kids must not be true. Its view of God is wrong. Brother, the logic of the gospel of grace instructs us to have faith in God alone, to do what God alone can do. Does that make sense? And this is precisely what Abraham did. He believed God. He believed God to give him a son that only God could possibly do. It was this belief, this faith, that was the only basis that God used then to see Abraham as righteous, It was Abraham's faith that met God's perfect standard to be in right relationship with himself. Do you see Paul's point? Rather than Abraham working hard for right understanding, for right standing with God, God viewed him as righteous. God had justified him. God declared him as sinless because of Jesus. Why? Because of his faith in God, not his works. A faith that evidenced itself through obedience and good works, but not the other way around. This is Paul's final piece of evidence from the Galatian experience that faith is effective for our salvation faith alone. It's consistent with scripture. What a lesson we need to hold to, don't we? As we try to figure out what is of God, what isn't. As we try to figure out what's true, what is not true. As we try to discern what's consistent with the logic of the gospel of grace, we must, we must, we must turn back To God's word over and over again. The Bible faithfully interpreted is the standard of truth by which we can judge our experiences. It's the standard by which we can judge what's true and what's false. We need doctrinal conviction to interpret our experiences, don't we? We need right doctrine to help us interpret our feelings and our desires. The moment we begin to desert the logic of the gospel of grace based solely on a particular experience, or based solely on what we're feeling in the moment, or based solely on what we want to be true, is the moment that we've allowed our experiences and our emotions and our desires to then become the standard of truth whereby we judge what is true and what is false. Think, think about this. We actually place ourselves as the standard, don't we, over God's word. And if you know, I mean, if you have any appreciation for what happened in the fall, What happened to our hearts, where they are inclined now because of the fall, that should scare you to death to think that we're going to put ourselves as judges over what is right and wrong. We get to choose what we accept, what we change, what we're going to reject. Rather, the posture of the Christian in trying to sort out what is true is one of submission, isn't it? It's one of holding open hands and receiving what God through his word is showing us, what he's teaching us. And some of these things are really, really hard but we keep our hands open anyway. We study God's word responsibly, and for Paul, such a study only leads to reinforce, to further ground, to further prove the logic of the gospel of grace. It's a tight logic that leaves no room to mix and match other worldviews in. It's either faith in Jesus alone, based on what he did on the cross that was completely sufficient, that we're given by grace. It's either that alone or it's nothing. It's either faith alone, or it's nothing. There's no modifying the gospel of grace. There's no Jesus plus being a nice person. There's no Jesus plus attending church for our justification. There's no Jesus plus anything else, because Jesus plus anything else is a false gospel. It hollows out the power of the cross. It makes a mockery of what Jesus has done, and it says that Jesus died for no point. But praise God, Jesus' gracious work was completely sufficient for our salvation. Praise God, our faith in that work of Jesus is all that God requires of us. as a faith that itself is even a gracious gift that God gives us. This is true, argues Paul, is consistent with the logic of the gospel of grace. Even the experience of the Galatians prove it. It was by faith alone, not works, that they received the Spirit. It was by faith alone not works that the Spirit is now maturing them in their faith. It's by faith alone not works that so too the Spirit uh, helps them to endure persecution. It was by faith alone not works that, that the Spirit now, now works miracles among them. And it's faith alone not works that is consistent with the message of Scripture. It's true for us too this morning. <laughs> like this doesn't change. Your experience, Christian, of the presence Of the Spirit is evidence that you have been given salvation based solely on your faith, not because of how great a person you are. You can't do enough good works, nor can you do good enough works to earn it or to deserve it or twist God's arm into giving it to you. Have you grown in your faith over time, Christian? If so, that's evidence of the Spirit. Have you experienced miracles? Are your experiences consistent with Scripture? Have you experienced remorse for your sin? If so, that's evidence of the Spirit. Have you experienced a godly strength in times that are really difficult? How about a profound peace, and emotional tumult? These are some ways the Spirit evidences himself in our lives, evidences that we are indeed saved and that salvation based solely on upon faith. That's the logic of the gospel of grace. It's a truth that we get to celebrate, church. We get to celebrate that we've been saved. We've been given brand new life because it pleased God to give it to us. (laughs) It's done. It's been accomplished. God did for us what we never could. We celebrate this every week. God, I thank you that you accomplished for us what we never could you sacrificed your son so that we would not have to work hard at doing something that's impossible to do to earn right standing with you. We could never keep the law. We could never be perfect in that way. One sin is enough to separate us from you forever. I thank you that you chose out of love and grace to us to save. He made Jesus that way. So even as we celebrate this morning what Jesus did through communion, Spirit, I pray that you would be showing us uh, in deeper ways um, your love for us, your view of sin. Would you well up in us gratitude for what you have done for us, I pray? Would our hearts respond by a growing love for you? Spirit, I pray that you continue to grow us. That's your job. Would you continue to mature us? Would you give us right desires? As we put in the hard work, would you continue to encourage us? We need that. And God, if there's people this morning in here that don't yet trust you or think they trust you but, but don't really trust you alone, they, they, you haven't saved them yet. God, I pray that you would save them. Would you, would you open up their eyes to see what is true? That's a work that only you can do. Draw them to yourself, I pray. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.